Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Diana Love, a nurse and PhD student from University of Wisconsin School of Nursing, about healthcare experiences of people with intersex traits. We also want to let our listeners know that we are undergoing some strategic changes so that we can improve our listener experience and streamline our processes. We will no longer be offering our traditional show notes and will instead include takeaways, resources, and transcripts directly on our website. However, we would still love and appreciate your support, and you can find ways to support us on our website by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com and clicking the Support Us tab. Also, if you missed our big news, nurses can now earn CE for listening to the Women Centered Health podcast. Just check out mycehq.com or download the CEHQ app. Or visit our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com to learn more. And I am recording with my tiny person. You may hear from giggling in the background. And I apologize for my froggy voice, but I promise I don't feel as bad as I sound. Hi, Diana. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. So the first question we always ask our guests is if you can share with our listeners some details about your background. Sure thing. And thank you so very much for having me. I'm so pleased to be here. And I love your little gurgling human in the background. So I am a registered nurse. I have been a nurse for 23 years. Most of my career I spent in public health as a local public health department. And I mostly did sexual health care while I was there. I feel really blessed that in my time at public health, I got to really do both one-on-one contact with people, work with people. People directly, but also work at a systems and a policy level. And a lot of my systems and policy work really focused on the healthcare experiences and just impact of for LGBTQIA plus people in healthcare spaces and in the world in general. Like what policies do we need to support queer people, that kind of stuff. So that's a little bit of my background. Oh, and also, I, I am a PhD student. I forgot about that part for half a second. It's summer. Sorry, y'all. I, and I decided to come back for a PhD just with the recognition that I wanted to make more impact in the processes and spaces that I knew needed to change. Healthcare is having some issues with addressing and dealing with queer people. That's just the way it is. It's just obviously happening. And I knew I wanted to do something to make an impact on that. And I landed on the healthcare experiences of people with intersex traits with the recognition that these people are experiencing some pretty dramatic and traumatic healthcare processes on their bodies. They've been fighting really hard in advocacy and activist spaces to make some changes in healthcare practice, and they haven't been very successful to date. And so I wanted to add what power and impact I could make to a group of people who are really fighting hard for their rights. That's sort of how I landed on people with intersex traits. Well, yeah, and hopefully you haven't even done your dissertation yet, but getting this on a podcast, you're disseminating your knowledge so to other people. So excited to do it. Yeah. So the other question we always ask our guests is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? 
Sure. I do what I do because I'm a queer person myself. I identify as queer for my sexuality. I'm also non-binary for my gender. And the non-binary piece, relatively recent for me, but I was have been exposed to my kid identified as non-binary about maybe 10 years ago. So I've had just a lot of experiences with queer people in my life. Most of the people I know and hang out with are queer. And as a clinician who mostly served queer people, I just heard and saw a lot of the trauma and a lot of the negative experiences that people have when they're seeking health care. A lot of stigma, a lot of shame, a lot of just not space made for queer people in healthcare spaces. A lot of discrimination happens and that just leads to a lot of medical trauma for people. So that just as somebody who's experienced it and also somebody who has seen it, I just, something's got to happen. <laughs> something's got to happen. And the recognition that healthcare systems are really inadequately trained, inadequately resourced, and really don't have the information they need to address and deal with the healthcare needs of people with intersex traits or queer people in general. So I am really excited about providing the evidence needed and hopefully the education needed as well for us to sort of start to turn some of these systems towards justice, towards care that actually meets people where they're at and the care that they need. Diana, you are speaking a lot of our love language, and we are very excited to be speaking with you today. I think I can speak on behalf of Stephanie and I that we're like, yes, to all of that that you said. <laughs> all right. So like we said, today we're going to talk about healthcare for folks with intersex traits. So let's jump right in. Our first question is, is can you start by explaining to our listeners, what does it mean to be a person with intersex traits and how common is this? Sure. That's a really great question. Intersex traits are an umbrella term that describes many different pathways and experiences that people who have variations in sex trait development. So this could be things like gonads, ovaries or testes, genitals, external genitals, reproductive organs, and then secondary sex traits, things like breast tissue development, fat and muscle distribution. All those kinds of things are what we call falling under the sex trait umbrella. And intersex variations or intersex traits are some way, some pathway that there's been some variation in that process while somebody is developing or during the course of their life. So sometimes people will be born and not recognize they have an intersex trait, have some variation that will start to express during adolescence or puberty. So it could be a trait that is experienced across the lifespan. It doesn't always happen to people in their infancy or not known about in infancy. And the best estimate we have, nobody has accurately assessed or counted uh, intersex traits. There's been attempts over the course of many years. And so the best estimate we have is about 1.6% of the population is born with some variation in, in sex trait development. And that is about equivalent to the number of redheads. So it's not a tiny number of people. And so that's why it, I think it's just important to really consider and think about how does healthcare happen for these people? And what can we do to start making healthcare systems more responsive and more accepting of people with some variation in their body traits. So historically, how have people with intersex traits been treated and cared for by clinicians? So there is historical pattern that is actually really horrendous to talk about, but I think it's really important for people to understand why we're at the point we're at with, with care for people with intersex traits. Historically, it was so shameful that people were literally counseled don't tell anybody. Don't talk about the intersex trait with your child who has this intersex trait. We are going to fix these genitals and just never talk about it again. Don't let anybody know. There was just so much shame and so much stigma that literally the approach of, of providers was to hide it and to pretend it didn't exist, try their best to fix it, and then assume that people will 
be fine with the gender or sex that we've assigned them throughout their life and then not think anything or have any issues with stigma if they just don't even know, which is ridiculous, of course. So insane. I can hardly even stand the thought of it. Because of course, what happened is people would become adults and then realize at some point, hey, you know, I've had all these genital exams all my life because they did surgery. Now we have to check on how the surgery is doing. And so I, I in- inherently understood something was wrong with my genitals, right? That's the message people get is that there's something wrong with me. I knew there was something wrong with me. I just didn't know what it was. And so people would start to find their medical records, discover this about themselves, and then have these terrible crises of understanding, shame, fear, pain, anger, just a lot of disruptive really hard to deal with kind of experience. And the intersex activist movement was actually born out of that process with people realizing, oh my God, I have been lied to my whole life by every provider I've ever seen, my parents, my family, they just lied to me. And a lot of people realizing at some point, I didn't even want the surgery. I would have preferred the body I had, would have used it just fine. And early on, the attempts, the most common types of genital surgeries are really vaginal surgeries for people who have congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is like an overbuilding or overfunctioning so that people end up with too much testosterone. They, are, they have female chromosomes, XX chromosomes, but they end up with a lot of testosterone. Their body ends up with a lot of testosterone. And so the genitals are like their, their clitoris is larger, their genital opening or their, their vaginal opening may not be in exactly the same shape that we're typically associating with females. So what they used to do is literally take the clitoris and chop it off. They would literally chop the whole thing off and then create a vaginal opening in babies and infants. And then you have to, you know, as anybody who's had any sort of vaginal issues would know, you have to dilate that to keep it open. So you're literally dilating and inserting things in a baby's vagina is just, yeah, it's a horrifying process. So that was historically. I would say currently, there's less of the uh, belief that we should hide the traits. So people are less likely to do that. That's very uncommon now. So at least people and providers will talk about it. But there's still an absolute reliance on fixing the appearance of people's genitals very early on in order to reduce stigma. That's sort of the approach to it. Unfortunately, there's zero evidence. That's, I mean, really, unfortunately, there's zero evidence that 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 surgery is a way to fix stigma. That fixing an appearance actually changes that stigmatized experience for other people. And the orientation is really around how do we make parents comfortable with this child who has a natural variation in their body type, instead of just recognizing your child has a natural variation in your body type. That's okay. That happens sometimes, about 1.6% of the time. And here are some other people in a peer support group who have also dealt with this and can help you as you directly address and go through your life so you can educate the people around you and you can feel more comfortable and not ashamed or stigmatized by this experience your child is having. Children also need those that support but not until they're a little bit older. But there are ways to just help people recognize that's a normal body type. It happens and it's okay. It won't harm you to have a body that looks a little bit different than other people's. And we'll just wait and see what happens as you grow older to see if you do want surgery that works for the kind of sex you want to have in your life later on when you're an adult. Well, you touched on some of this already, but when we think about our current healthcare system, what challenges do folks with intersex traits have when navigating the healthcare system? So I'll start with the very first and most obvious one. We aren't, they aren't counted, right? Nobody asks if you have an intersex trait. 
You are asked if you are male or female, which is using asking a sex term using gender words. And then you are not asked about your gender, or perhaps in some places you are asked if you have a gender identity that is outside of these male and female words. And then that's pretty much, that's that's it. Nobody is asking or assessing if, if you have an intersex trait, intersex trait. So you're not even counted. There is no language to make space for your experience in healthcare forms, in healthcare processes, in EHR, electronic health records, and very little, honestly, in provider's language. I think probably the most difficult part and the most stigmatizing part is this focus on fixing. Like you're taking somebody who has a natural variation. This has happened because of the way their body is forming and focusing on how do I make it look normal like other people's instead of just focusing on what do you need to make your way through your world and your life as healthy and as happy as you can be. The focus is not on how do we approach what you need from your very unique and individualized perspective. It's very much on fixing and normalizing genital appearance so that other people are comfortable. Really, it's more of a focus on other people than on their own bodies and their own needs. So patient-centered care is my primary number one thing I would say about working with anybody that is not that you're not familiar with. Focus on who they are what they want, what they need, and how do we get there? And those are the only conversations we need to be having in healthcare. So can I, I wanted to go back to the historical piece and I don't remember the story exactly, but I was, after talking with you the first time, I started to Google more about intersex trait and came across like the main, you know, the top website. Mm -hmm. I can't think of the name. I'm sure you interact. Okay. Yeah. Interact. Mm -hmm. And they talked about this story of, I think it was a man who's kind of like, you know, well, like in history, it was well known sort of. You're talking about John Money. Yeah. Can you talk about that story? Oh, God. I actually learned about John Money before I'd ever even recognized anything about people with intersex traits, because he very much focused on this concept that that children are tabula rasa as far as gender identity comes. So they come a blank slate. There's nothing about them before they are born that would indicate or make you assume that their gender is inherent that you can place gender on the top of somebody through social conditioning alone and that that will make them whatever gender they are, right? That's That was his belief. And he is a very prominent psychologist, very well-regarded, very well-respected, and, and had a lot of money. He worked for John Hopkins, as a matter of fact. So John Hopkins is very much the driving force behind this experience of surgery and shaming and hiding for people with intersex traits. They're very prominent in that process. So the story that everybody talks about is David. So John Money had a case relatively early on or maybe mid of his career. There are two boys, they're twins. They were born in Canada and David had a botched circumcision. So his circumcision was so... Like his circumcisions really destroyed his penis to the point that they did not think they could save it. And so they wanted to just remove his penis. And John Money was introduced to these parents and this family. And his approach was, we'll make David into a girl. We'll just never tell him that that's not what's happening. He's a girl. You act like he's a girl. You always act like that. You dress him as a girl. He'll come to my clinic in Baltimore and we'll make sure that he ends up a girl. Don't worry about it. We'll, we'll make sure that happens. What proceeded to happen is John Money had like 
very little academic support for his belief system. He just believed it so strongly that he was certain he was accurate. So we would have these these brothers come to his his clinic, and then they would do things like play act sex positions as male and female to reinforce. These are brothers, mind you. These are siblings, and to reinforce that David was a female and that the other the brother was a boy, and that they, this is how women and men together had sex. So they would imitate sex acts, fully clothed. But, you know, I mean, it's it's horrifying, the sexual abuse that happened to these children. And all along, this child, who eventually chose the name of David, was trying to express, no, I'm not a girl. I know I'm not a girl. Something's wrong. I This isn't right. I'm not a girl. I don't understand why you all insist on this. He was quite suicidal and had a lot of trauma during his life. And even while John Money was publishing and insisting that his theory of gender as a tabula rasa was correct and very good, even while he knew that this wasn't working for this kid, David, he still published, he still talked about his theory, he still continued to push his concepts, and he just really never came back and said, well, actually, it turns out I was wrong, that that's not the way this happens, and that lots of people can't just have gender placed on top of them and, and treated that way their whole lives and have that just function as an actual way that this works. Unfortunately, though, the intersex surgical community who treats people with intersex traits really embraced this concept. I think for them, it was a simplistic, straightforward way to address what they considered to be this terrible, shameful, and stigmatizing experience. And they, oh, well, here's an easy answer. Let's just stick with this one. And we'll just keep doing it well past the time when most other gender scholars had moved on from this concept. There was lots of evidence it wasn't actually true. They just kind of kept that in their minds and then operated and oriented around that from going forward. So that's the story of, oh, and the, the, the saddest piece of all is that David did end, eventually end up committing, committing suicide. His devastation was just so total. His trauma was just so total. He really tried. He got married. He, you know, he just did everything he could to have the life that he wanted and could, but he was so traumatized, he never really was able to heal from that. And that's the legacy of John Money. That's the piece I want people to walk away from. His name should be dust, should be dirt. He should never be used. He shouldn't be quoted. Every time it comes up, it should be the legacy of John Money is David died. Sorry. Get a little passionate about that one. It's horrible. No, that, the, uh, that, I didn't know all that. I, you know, the part I read was really short and I think it was more focused like on the, on David's piece. And I remember, so he wasn't necessarily born with intersex nope, traits. Nope, nope, nope. He had a botched um, circumcision. Yeah, but it it it's a good it is like a example of you know for intersex for trans for non-binary like you know just because our genitals look a certain way doesn't mean that we're going to behave a certain way or yes. desire Exactly. And I think that's, that's that's probably the most resounding message to walk away with, is that there's just so much natural variation in the way people experience sex, gender and sexuality and Assuming a binary about any of those is just really inaccurate, number one, and stigmatizing, number two, and then really harmful to people who experience some of this variation just for who as they are. Like it's just, it's just so harmful to not have space made for you in clinical experiences to be denied, ignored, shamed, stigmatized, discriminated against. It just causes a lot of harm. 
a lot of queer people avoid healthcare experiences entirely just because of they, they've experienced some sort of stigma or discrimination or they've heard about it from other people. And so they just avoid going with the understanding that that will probably happen to me too. And I just can't experience it. I can't deal with that. I've already got it so much from the world around me. I can't deal with it inside of this space that is supposed to be there for me and my health. And all it does is add more problems. I'm trying to move forward from my mortification. That was, wow. Which I think actually kind of segues nicely into our next question is how can surgeons or other providers discuss care for infants with intersex traits? That's a really great question. I'm so glad you asked it. This is sort of the the crux of where change desperately needs to happen in the healthcare system. So I'll just directly express that this is coming from people with intersex traits from the intersex activist community. This is not my theory, my concepts. I am literally just saying what people with intersex traits have been saying for over 20 years. And that is delay discussions about genital surgery until people are old enough to give information about their sex, gender, and sexuality so they can make decisions for themselves on what or any surgeries that make sense for their lives and their bodies. Just straight up don't. Just don't offer it. Don't think about it as a solution. Focus on what's needed for the health of this baby, this child that's in front of thee. If I don't think about their genitals, right? If their genitals or their reproductive organs aren't a part of the conversation, unless there is something that is needs to be addressed, like removal of urine or feces, or if there is some part of a body that's going to need to have a surgery because it's going to cause a problem later on, those kinds of things sure discuss, but genital and reproductive organ surgeries should not be happening on infants and children. Period. End of story. Stop hard. Don't talk about it. And please don't offer it. They should be banned is my is what the intersex community is really asking for. There are some, of course, variation within the intersex community. There's an intersex activist community that's really exclusively, not exclusively, but pretty focused on banning all surgeries for infants and children. There are groups of people, especially with people with congenital adrenal hyperplasia. They have a different sort of support system that they've developed for themselves. And that group of people are like, well, Surgery isn't always bad, and we would like the option, and so we don't want to talk about banning surgeries. We think that should be an individual and family decision with a focus on family, of course, because these are often surgeries done on infants and children, so the person doesn't get any input into that conversation. But I want to be clear that there are these different conversations happening within the intersex community, and I don't want to deny anybody their voice or their right to have their opinions and to speak about the care that they'd wish to have. Most people with intersex traits are more focused, I would say, on banning surgeries with a smaller group of people who are interested in saying, yeah, actually, I liked the surgery I had. I thought it was helpful for me. I don't see a problem with that. We'd like to keep that conversation on the table. Some difference in that. So what about like as a clinician speaking to parents then, like how can they frame these conversations? Because obviously this could be a big source of shame and stigma for a parent. So what can that conversation look like? Sure. And that's just so wonderful. I think that that you're thinking about that as you're holding your baby. I'm like, it's beautiful, right? Parents, of course, have this experience as well, right? And most of us have never been taught about what it means to have somebody with an intersex trait. We think about sex very much in two buckets, male or female. And this concept that there is something other than that, or there's some experience that blends these, these sex traits in some people's bodies is just a very foreign concept to, to most parents. They're like, I didn't know that could happen. 
happened. I am very confused about this. I am scared. What does this mean for my child? I just want what's best for my child. And so I would say the most important thing for clinicians to focus on is to read the research. <laughs> One, read the research. There is no evidence that surgeries impact stigma later on. No evidence at all that stigma reduces for people with intersex traits just because they've had some normalizing surgery. So read the research. And the other piece is really talk to parents about natural variation. Bodies come in all sorts of shapes, sizes, and experiences. Natural variation occurs in multiple millions of pathways within bodies while they are forming. Your child has this type of natural variation. Sometimes, Later on in life, people decide that they want to have surgeries to adjust their genital appearance in a way that works for them or to create some openings for sex, shall we just say, right? But that's a decision that can be made later on when your child is ready to talk about those things. In the meantime, here is this lovely parent support group of people who also have this, uh, parents for people who also have these traits, and we would love to connect you with them so that you have people to talk with who have also shared this experience. I'd say it's the exact same as it would be for a person born with any natural variation in their body that is literally appearance only. It's not a medical emergency. It's not a critical thing to deal with right now. It is literally, you're a little bit embarrassed because you didn't know this could happen and you think that a body should be shaped a certain way, but don't worry about it too much. It's okay. Here's some people who have shared this experience and can help you talk about sex and gender with your child, with your family, with your daycare, with the kids in your neighborhood, when your kid is old enough to start playing with their friends. Tons of books, tons of resources for parents and, and kids and just really focusing on this is a natural variation. A quick, I don't know, tangent I want to take because I think it's important here. But, you know, when you think of all the legislation that's happening with trans folks as well, is this conversation that it's like they don't believe that kids or children have the ability to discuss and like own their gender. And so I wonder if you could maybe speak to like the developments Base of like age of children when this may be appropriate or there's a lot of controversy about this actually so I think it's a really fascinating question it is not my area of expertise so I'm not going to act like I'm speaking for, at this to this from an area of expertise my understanding is and this is just from honestly from being around a bunch of parents who have queer kids <laughs> like this is more my lived experience than my my academic or or professional experience is that that kids start to develop some gender identity and awareness somewhere around four to five, and that they can be aware of as as like a trans kid, like a recognition. Oh, you keep calling me this thing, and I don't want to be called that thing. I actually think of myself this way, and that could actually start happening before four to five. I think kids are maybe able to articulate starting at four to five, and. Kids who identify as trans very young typically are the kids we're going to stick with it all the way through. So those are kids who recognize very early on, nope, actually, I am not a girl. I'm so boy. And, and as long as they're allowed to social transition, wear hair, clothing, et cetera, that kind of matches that gender identity internally, those kids generally just don't have many psychosocial health problems as long as they're supported and allowed to express themselves. Sometimes kids get a little older and they recognize, oh, actually, it just turns out I was gay. I just didn't have words to talk about that yet. So actually, I'm not trans. I just feel like a boy because I like other girls, like boys are supposed to like girls or whatever that, whatever that realization is. So I think the point is, is that it's actually really individual. Sometimes people 
people will recognize in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Oh, shit. This weird thing that was always just a little bit off about me that I couldn't quite place. Turns out I was trans. Like I didn't know how to talk about it, think about it, be about it. But once I realized it and I made the decision to just accept it, people recognize, oh, all that anxiety, depression, fear, shame, embarrassment, all of that was wrapped up in these gender identity concepts that I didn't even know how to talk about. So really, transition and, and awareness of, of change in gender or variation in gender can happen across the lifespan. I think that's the most important piece to talk about. Kids can start a process of transitioning socially and then decide at some point, yeah, it's actually not exactly right, or maybe I'm more non-binary and I don't really need to change my appearance or my body or whatever. It, it happens across the lifespan, and I just wish we would take take up the space and the recognition for people to be okay with that. Like, identify, like I spoke very early on, I identified as non-binary very, relatively late in my life, just maybe two years ago. And it really, for me, was a process of just recognizing, wow, I just don't want to click that damn woman button. I just don't want to. Where's my option? You know, and then just continuing to get frustrated with never really having a box to check for something that felt like, how are you going to decide some shit about me based on this box that I don't even want to check, but I can't go on until I check one or two. You know, it just, it grew and grew and grew until I recognized, hey, I actually don't want to be referred to as feminine with female pronouns. I prefer neutral pronouns if they and them. And that makes me feel more comfortable, oddly. I don't even know how to describe it all. It's just such a process and such an experience. And it's very, very, very individual and it happens across the lifespan. I love what all the stuff that you just said. And I honestly, like, I feel a little, I don't know, embarrassed that I never really thought about it that simply, like checking a box and feeling uncomfortable about that because, you know, I haven't had that lived experience. So I haven't. And I think that it like really resonates. I know like just even, and especially like we talked about this, Dr. Mel Hauser, whose episode is coming out today on neurodiversity. And a lot of what you're saying, like with the natural variations and gender and sex, like it's the same, you know, it's, it's our brain. Our brain is, has natural variation, infinite natural variation. Yeah. Mel was talking about kind of the same thing, like realizing as an adult that you're non-binary, that you're maybe like on the autism spectrum or, you know, just like different, different ways that you know, you might not really realize it until you're older. And I know like I, I sometimes I'm like perplexed at adults coming out. Well, you're really liberal and like always celebrated pride and and but why didn't you come out until now? And so those like that really makes a lot of sense to me because I had always kind of been like confused. Like, why didn't you come out when you were 20 or, you know, because you're pretty cool with that. Like, yeah. Like I get people who maybe have a lot of shame with coming out, but I would it's like they just didn't realize it because your mind is for whatever reason your experience and you just have it hasn't it hasn't connected. Yep. Yet. And I would say primarily why that happens, and this is tr- this was true for me. I didn't realize I was queer at all until in my mid twenties. I had a sex dream with a woman. I was like, oh, snaps, friend could do that. I was married to a man at the time, but so it literally, it literally took a dream of me having that kind of experience to be like, oh. Oh, of course. Okay, good to know. Good to know. I didn't act on it for another eight years because I was married. But then once I did, I was like, okay, no, I like this. 
better, it turns out. Probably not actually bi, but it may be sexually a little bit bi. But I think the thing that really is most important to recognize is the reason I didn't know is because I was bi enough. I was hetero enough. And I grew up, and I'm older, I'll admit I'm 52, about to turn 53. So I was, I'm a Gen Xer. And my generation, the, the world I grew up in was just saturated, just totally saturated with assumptions of heterosexuality. It was everywhere all the time. There were no media representation. There was no imagery. There was no talking about. Nobody talked about sex that gay people had. Nobody talked about gay people at all. They didn't even exist. I just didn't know that I could be that way because it was so much a part of my growing up and my experience of figuring out who I was to be heterosexual. That's just, everybody was heterosexual. And what's funny is even as a kid, I I had a gay uncle. I knew a gay uncle, but still somehow everybody was heterosexual. (laughs) Don't ask me how that got in there, but it really did. It just took so long because I didn't, I, I could swing that way well enough that I just kind of went with that flow that was just this overwhelming current. And it just kind of carried me along until my 20s sometime before my brain was like, hey, wait a second, just so you know, there could be some different stuff happening. You might want to try it out at some point. So really, it, it can be a process of not recognizing because of how norming our culture is around heterosexuality binary gender and binary sex. They all go together. You're born a, you're born a man, born a woman, you'll be a man, you'll be a woman, and you'll have sex with the opposite sex. Always, period, end of story. That's just so much a part of who, how we think in this culture. It just is. And that's a huge part of what I want to change. I There's this show that my husband and I watch on HBO called Hacks. Yes, we love Hacks. Oh my God. And, and the way they talk about sexuality and gender in that show i just adore but like i think like the main the younger main character i yes. name totally blanking on their names right now but like just kind of challenges the older woman the comedian to be like am i really like straight or is it just because yep. like did you just have sex with a man because you're supposed to have sex with a man yep like yep. and i was like i never really thought about it like that like you can have fun, like just exploring. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you don't like it, but try it out, kind of a thing. Yes. And I was like, I never really thought about it that way. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And I think that's and then because it's just been so much a part of our cultural story for so long, breaking out of those bounds in your own mind take, yeah. takes effort. It takes effort. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks. That was a little deviation, but we're we're so good at that. Okay. So you kind of talked about like what, how surgeons and providers can discuss care for intersex infants. What changes can clinicians make to ensure their practice is more inclusive of people with intersex traits? So that's a really wonderful question. I'm so glad you asked. So a lot of the focus in advocacy and activist spaces for people with intersex traits really does focus on banning surgeries and focusing on surgeries. But there's also an emerging awareness and movement towards how do we how do we approach care for people with intersex traits as adults? Like we've, as in academia and as clinical providers, focused so exclusively on infancy and childhood for so long that we haven't really thought about what people with intersex traits would need as adults. Like literally, they're erased. Part of that is because the the assumption of surgeons is, oh, I erased that trait. It doesn't exist anymore because I did surgery. So there's nothing that has to change in practice. 
because the trait is pretty much gone. So I think the most important pieces to think is is to recognize 1.6% of the population has some of this natural variation and to start asking better questions right out the gate on your forms. Are you so are you male or female? Okay, fine. And, and but you're asking about sex then. <laughs> Let's be clear. Are you male or female? Do you have an intersex trait? Why isn't that a question on every intake form? 1.6% of the population, you think we should just ignore people who have intersex traits, you know? And generally, the assumption or the, the numbers that we can find around who identifies as trans is that's like 0.6% of the, the population. So much less of the population identifies as trans. And we started to make some, some movement towards recognizing that people could be trans in healthcare spaces and asking about gender identity and having that be a separate question from sex and having the assumption that sex and gender flow from each other. So we're just asking for some very simple adaptations to practice. Do you have an intersex trait? What type of trait? And, and then honestly, when you're in person with that, you know, face-to-face as a provider with that person, what does that mean for you? Tell me about what that pro- what that experience has been like. I'd like to hear your story, making space for people to share, and honestly and authentically being okay with hearing about their medical trauma and not taking that personal, right? This person has likely experienced some medical trauma in their life. So you're just going to have to be able to hear that, empathize with, with the patient in front of you, apologize on behalf of the providers who did this inappropriately to you, and then move on to what do you want, what are your goals, and what's the best way we can get you there? Period. End of story. Just recognizing that people might have this experience, making space for them to share your sto- their story, and then focusing on patient-centered care. It is literally no more than patient-centered care, which should be happening for everybody who walks in the door. And that's a huge part of our problem is we put people in boxes because it's simpler for clinicians and practices and organizations to deal with them in boxes. And we don't really know how to bust out of that experience, I think, as providers. I think it takes a lot of understanding that we've harmed people and that we have a lot of work to do and that that means I have to change how I understand and think about the world. That's A lot of it is internal work. I'm, I'm asking you to do some internal work as a provider. I'm asking you to recognize, do I hold some stigma or some discrimination or some thoughts about variation in sex traits or variation in gender identity or variation in sexuality? If I do, let me investigate why start to work on those and really start to neutralize how you talk about sex and gender in in just more neutral terms. Don't make assumptions about people who people are having sex with, no matter how they present. Don't make assumptions about how people think about their gender, no matter how they present. You know, all of those things, you just have to start asking more questions and being more receptive and responsive to what people are giving you. And really asking better questions on forms, especially. I want to loop in a couple of episodes But before I do that, I hope that our listeners get this theme because this is honestly in so many of our podcast episodes, it's about internal work. So much of communication is internal work. So I hope that our listeners are getting sick of hearing that because, I mean, it really is in all of our episodes. But a couple episodes I want to specifically mention is one that stepped in with Dr. Hauser and they had said it really great. They said anytime that there's a default, a system default you're automatically not inclusive. And so the default I feel like you're talking about is that man and woman, that's the system default. Or any questions we may ask, we're operating from a default. And so we need to start challenging and identifying where those defaults exist. So that's episode 59. 
for folks who maybe are just listening to us for the first time. The other episode that I'm not going to remember the number of is Medical Violence with Storm O'Brink. And we have an entire conversation about medical violence and how clinicians can discuss that with patients and all of the things that you said, but, you know, maybe even deeper hour plus that we talk about that. So for folks who want to hear more about that and, and exploring that, we have that episode as well. I can't wait to listen to that one. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to have to check that one out. Just to have that that in-depth, nuanced conversation about this medical violence that I mostly read about, I've never experienced. So I, that would be lovely. I'm really grateful to know that it is out there. Thank you. It also reminds me, uh, so I, I don't know if I've talked about this on our podcast before, but I did work on a research study at the VA, and I don't think any of it's published yet. The main aims were what the experience for veterans in building their families. And so it was this really long survey that was developed. A real high priority for the study team is that this was going to be a very inclusive study, including the the survey. So in order for it to be inclusive, we really had to get rid of that box, like you're saying. We couldn't say, are you a man or a woman? Okay, now we're going to ask you all the questions about uterus and cervix and ovaries. Or, oh, you're a man, we're going to ask you about your testicles. Like we had to get out of that because that's not inclusive. And, you know, I will say, so, you know, we took the survey from that traditional, like, are you male or female? Check, check to a lot of questions, but really what it gets down to, and I think maybe Storm talked about this too, is what, what do you have? Like, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't always matter to medicine, you know, or do you identify as trans or straight, you know, but what matters is what sex organs do you have what sex organs do you have sex with? Because that's where the medical part comes in. So, you know, we need to start. I mean, you know, I even challenge people like maybe don't even have those on your form. I know that really out there, but it's like, do you have a uterus? Yes or no? Because there are women who don't have uteruses. That's right. Um, that's right. So that's right. <laughs> you know, are do you have ovaries? Yes or no? Do you have, you know, testicles? Yes or no? In, in the trans community, it's known as an organ inventory. And that's mm-hmm. exactly what needs to happen. The point that trans folks have been making to us, and you know, I, I remember I told you I worked in sexual health as a clinician at, at my local health department. So we, and, and I live in a pretty progressive city with a lot of queer people. So we really did focus on queer sexual health. And we had that, that really grew out of sort of HIV prevention and HIV work. So that really was a, a focused, we learned how to work very well early on in my career with, with men who have sex with other men. That part we'd gotten, we nailed that, right? But at some point, as my kids started identifying as non-binary and the kinds of sex they were having were more queer. My kid is an adult. I use kid because I can't use a gendered term for them. So we're like a little bit stuck with my adult kid started telling me about the kinds of sex they were having. And I looked at my form and I'm like, damn, I would not have caught that there was a risk. I don't have any way to assess. I don't have any way to ask the right kinds of questions. We are failing these kids who don't identify as really any of it. <laughs> like, screw your boxes. Here's what I do with whom and how and when. And that's all I really want to talk about. So we had a process, had to go through a process of really looking at our forms, figuring out when we ask sex, what are why? Why are we asking about sex? What are the assumptions we're making? We ask about gender. Why? What are the assumptions we're making? We ask about sexuality. 
Why? What are the assumptions we're making? Who are we leaving out by having boxes instead of just really asking people? So we moved to an organ inventory. We would ask, you know, what types of sex do you have with what types of body parts? And what do you call those body parts? I'll use that word for it. It doesn't matter to me what you call it. I'll use that word too. And then I will use my clinical process to understand what kinds of sexual risk you might have been at that I need to test for and perhaps treat you for. And that's all it is. It's just a process of figuring out what do you use? What do you do with it? And what kind of risk does that put you at? And that's the risk piece is, of course, the sexual health conversation. And you're like, what do you have? What do you use? And how do you make a, you know make families with that process? Or what do you need to make a family? And I think the organ inventory. Is absolutely where it's at. Just don't assume. The organ inventory will give you so much more information about what's actually happening with somebody's body. And then you can use that information appropriately to figure out what, you, what your clinical process is, what needs to happen, what steps are next. How do I address the need for healthcare in this person once I know what they have or don't have and how they're using it or don't use it? So given all of this, you know, in the organ inventory and treating adults with intersex traits and kids with intersex traits, can you kind of talk about like any communication tips that you have for clinicians who have patients who have intersex traits? Yeah, I think the primary pieces, and we've touched on this with that conversation around that doing the inner work, recognizing why you have assumptions and doing the inner work to sort of unpack those for yourself so that it isn't something you lean on in the moment. That's probably the most important piece. What goes along with that inner work then is that then you will more easily be able to ask an organ inventory and not feel weird about it. You'll more easily be able to use gender neutral terms without thinking about it or having to really challenge yourself to do it well. And you'll be able to understand and think about people not as this is what a man looks like, this is what a woman looks like, but this is what this person looks like. And what do they need based on the body they have and the experience they're having? That's what we're asking for. Do the inner work so that it's not, you don't lean on the assumptions or those boxes so that when you talk to people, you understand the individuality of the person in front of you. This may be another kind of helpful episode for folks. If you're trying to find ways to get more comfortable with that, we do actually have, and I'm going to forget the number as well, an episode with an improv person, Jonathan Garland, who gave some really great tips and tricks on how to practice and get more comfortable with, you know, maybe talking specifically about that, those kinds of things. So if you're looking for maybe some, how do I practice this and not necessarily practice on my patients, I would check out that episode. Please don't practice on your patients. <laughs> I mean, we all will at some point just because it's new, um, unfamiliar, and it will take some time and process to get better at it. But please practice on people who aren't harmed by your practicing as much as you can. Yeah, it also reminded me maybe of the sex shame stuff too. So if you're feeling shame or shame on behalf of your patient or, or whatever, you have to do that internal work with why do I feel shame? And Dr. Nikki Julian, uh, we had two episodes on that, but really the one is like how sex shame for clinicians, because if we have shame, which we all do, we've all been socialized. We've all been socialized. Yeah, exactly. But we have to do that internal work on how to deal with our shame. So we don't project that on to our patients, because really that's where I think a lot of things 
go wrong. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. And and that's that that's the piece. Like, right, that our culture is just so saturated with these binary concepts of sex, gender, and sexuality that any deviation or variation from that, right, does bring up feelings of shame for in some people. Like, oh, that's wrong. <laughs> and why would you do that? And you know, those just kinds of concepts in and yeah. And it does cause a lot of harm for people who are like, that's literally my life. <laughs> literally my life. And I'm not ashamed of it. But I can tell you are. People can absolutely tell when somebody is uncomfortable with something and then they just won't talk to you again. They won't admit to you. They won't uh, give you information that you need to care for them appropriately, or they'll just straight up leave and find another provider who doesn't have that reaction. So you are causing harm if you aren't doing that work and you're likely going to drive your patients away, maybe away from healthcare they desperately need. Now I kind of feel like we're getting annoying, but we actually have another great episode <laughs> that talks about what you're talking about, where they just like won't come back or they can sense the that. And that was with Frankie or Francis Kuhnley on language and pronouns and the impact of not using appropriate language and pronouns. And I think that conversation also loops in well with what you're talking about. I would say what's interesting about people with intersex traits and their healthcare experiences is they do have a lot of overlap with several activist and advocacy groups and a lot of just variation or a lot of overlap with different types of experiences. They have some common experiences with, with queer people, with LGBTQ people, just with that assumption of heterosexuality and what body parts go where and how that all works. And that there is a binary sex, a binary gender, and a binary sexuality. They have some overlaps with the disability justice movement. Only the care I want I would like to access that only the care I want, and I would like to be able to refuse care that I don't want or does not serve me, the body, and the life I need and live in right now. And some overlaps with reproductive justice, you know, leave my reproductive parts alone so that I can make the decisions I need to make for my body and my life so that I can make families how I want to make a family, how, how, whatever that looks like. And I have the resources and the support to have pleasure and, you know, have pleasurable sex and to have whatever kind of sex I'm, I want to and have whatever kind of reproductive access that I need in order to have safely have the sex I want to have. So I get it. There's a lot of overlap. I think that's why this this conversation touches on so many of these various places, is that intersex people carry and have so many of these these experiences on their bodies, and they, they have learned how to talk very clearly about that, and that there's just a lot of intersections with a lot of other types of experiences people are having in healthcare that are also learning how to start to fight and push back against these systems to make space for themselves. Yeah, and the other thing... It reminded me, like Frankie talked about clinicians who are just like totally feel shame and judgment or make assumptions that everyone is heterosexual. And, you know, so there's those clinicians, but there there's other clinicians who are they think that they're cool with all this. And but then they go they take that to focusing on that trait that they're cool with or that they want to seem cool with and talked about, you know, like a trans patient going in a broken arm syndrome. Yes. Broken arm. And then the provider is like, talk, Oh, talk to me about like, what kind of genitals do you have? And who do you have sex with? And it's like, I'm not here for that. So I'm wondering like, if like intersex people experience that same, the people with intersex traits, if they kind of experience that same issue when they're like, I'm not here for my sex organs right now. Literally. I mean, this is not even a joke. Literally 
hundreds of stories of, oh, you have, you have an intersex trait, you've had surgery or not had surgery, whatever their experience is. You are now the model patient. Every med student is coming through. Every provider is coming through. Everybody's going to do, want to look at your genitals. Like that's this, this level of medical trauma that, that people experience is like, everybody wants to look at my genitals all the time. There's something wrong. Like, even if you didn't tell me that something was going on, I still picked up that something is not right about my genitals because everybody wants to look at them every time I come to see a provider. So there is, that does absolutely happen. And I think there's some sense, like how providers get into that space is there's some awareness of, oh, I don't have this experience. I don't understand it. I would like to understand it. And here's this person right in front of me that could educate me answer to that is no, never. (laughs) Please stop. (laughs) Hard stop right there. Your patient should never be educating you about the experience that they're having. You should have enough basic information to be able to ask the questions appropriately and be able to focus on their care and their needs. If you don't have that information, straight up admit it right up front. Hey, look, I've actually never worked with somebody with this experience. So I'm going to do my best. I hope I don't mess it up. If I do, I would love for you to interrupt me and tell me what what I said that was not appropriate or that you would like me to change. And I will do my best to learn about this before the next time we meet so that I won't take up our time together focusing on what I should already know. That's really how I would suggest people uh, approach that. I understand it's natural curiosity. People feel like, oh, I'm good with this. I'm really interested. I'm curious. But your patient shouldn't be educating you ever. That's what the internet is for. And Google has a remarkable number of personal stories that you can learn from. People do share their experiences and they do share their their pain and their joy on the internet. And there are lots of ways to learn about what it's been like for trans folks or people with intersex traits in, in medical institutions. Lots of ways to learn. So what is one thing that you really want all clinicians to take away from this and knowing about people with intersex traits? I think the most important thing to take away is that it's not uncommon, right? The the narrative in the medical community and the academic community is really this is these are rare traits, very small portion of the population. You don't have to worry about it. We fixed it then we don't have to talk about it anymore, right? So um, these are not rare. And they and you can't assume what somebody has experienced or what their life has been like based on the checkbox on your forms. Really, that you have to make more space for people to tell you about their experiences. And that starts with, do you identify or are you male, you know, man or woman, male or female? Do you have an intersex trait? Tell me about your gender identity. Tell me about your sexuality on the forms. Right? It has to start the very first time people reach out to a healthcare system or they're just not going to use your services, honestly. They're going to find somebody who is more responsive. So recognizing it's not rare, recognizing you are likely have people with intersex traits, have, have seen people with intersex traits throughout your practice and you didn't even know about it and that you are probably treating people and, and you just don't even know because you haven't um, asked the right kinds of questions. So assume that you will treat or care for people with intersex traits. And if you don't know enough about the medical experience, there are some great, great, great educational opportunities out there nowadays. Boston's Children's Hospital has done some really great work. um, And there will be some other resources I can link you to. I'm like, I can't think of them all off the top of my head right now. Do the work yourself before you harm another patient would be the one thing I would say to take away from this. Great. Yeah, thank you. So we also have a growing number of listeners who do not identify as clinicians. 
what would you like to share with anyone really? And especially with people who have intersex traits or just other folks in general? I think the primary message that I hear from intersex activists and advocates is there's nothing inherently wrong with having a natural variation in a sex trait. There's just nothing wrong about that. That is, it is a natural variation in body experience, period. <laughs> That's really all we have to say about it. Honestly, it's how I feel about it. That if we just accept that this is an, a, a part of being human and some people will have this natural experience, this natural variation, and that sex, gender, and sexuality are things that can shift and move across the lifespan. And you can never assume anything about what somebody else has got going on until you do an organ inventory and you explicitly ask them. That's, I think, really. So just that natural variation happens. It's normal. It's fine. And we, if we expand our concepts of sex, gender, and sexuality, we can really start to recognize that this binary, these binary assumptions don't capture the experience of a significant portion of our population, and that is growing all the time, and that that's internal work for us to do, right? That those concepts have been planted in our brains. They aren't normal or natural or God-given or whatever else you want to say about that. They are not that way. They are actually inherently variant, just like every other body and experience on the planet, and that that natural variation is actually beautiful if we could just make some space for it in the world instead of considering it wrong, shameful, afraid, whatever those you know processes are, that it's just normal and natural. That's what I really want people to recognize. That's beautiful. I love that. Okay. So you mentioned Boston Children's as a resource. Can you talk more about that resource? And then it, what other resources would you recommend where our listeners can um, learn more about care for people with intersex traits? Sure. So, but the primary piece I want to talk about is Interact Advocates, and that's a webpage. And this is um, an advocacy and activist group of people, primarily people with intersex traits and their families who run this organization. And they do a lot of work, a lot, a lot, a lot of work with media, with you know providers, with research, all sorts of things to really help the whole world understand about these natural variations in experience and what's most important for people with intersex traits. And it comes from the mouths of people with intersex traits. So that's why I primarily focus on use Interact Advocates. They have great information for providers, for parents, for kids, um, just a lot of great stuff. They have um, a lot of, they work a lot with youth and do a lot of advocacy work with youth and leadership work with youth. So there's a lot, there's a very much a focus on how do we build up people with intersex traits as youth to do this leadership and advocacy work. The other place I would point people to, and especially if you're interested in potentially working um, with your hospital to stop these surgeries from happening, would be the Intersex Justice Project. So this is intersex people-led organization. They are both people of color. Um, and so this is really just an organization that's very much focused on pressure, you know, social and political pressure on organizations that won't ban surgeries. And they have a whole process that they work with people to, to really orient around or really work pu- uh, publicly on stopping intersex surgeries. There have been two hospitals that have banned some of these procedures on infants and children. Boston Children's is one. The other is Lurie 
Chicago, uh, Children's Hospital in Chicago. And both of those places only enacted those bans because of the activism of the Intersex Justice Project. They had, there was a combination of inside and outside pressure. So they had some clinicians internally who were starting to resist these practices and processes, people who identify as queer or who are allies with queer people, recognizing this is not right. I won't participate. We need to change this. And then outside pressure from um, Intersex Justice Project. And, you know, they'll come and they'll chant and hold signs and make a big bunch of noise. But those, I think, a combination of inside and outside pressure is what actually changes practice. Um, And we've seen it successfully happen in two hospitals. So I really encourage people to, to pay attention to and follow the lead of people with intersex traits, and particularly these people who are at the edge of that activist work and, and people of color doing that work. So Intersex Justice Project. And there's also, um, it's important to recognize that, like I said, there are hundreds of variations and ways to have this natural variation in the body occur. There are many syndromes, um, and each of these kinds of syndromes or uh, names that we give to a type of experience or process Most of them also have an advocacy organization oriented just around this experience. So if it's a specific type of trait, then there are places where you can learn more, get peer support, get parent support that are specific to a type of trait. So there are websites out there that are specific to each type of trait. I can send you a list of those. But the primary piece that I want people to walk away from and understand is people with intersex traits have been battling this as activists and advocates for a really long time, over 20 years. They should be leading this work. We can, as people who want to change this experience for people, line up behind them and give our ally support. And it is important that we do that. And if you want to know more about people with intersex traits, please listen to it directly from them, their experience. Don't read the medical literature. It's horrifying. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, thank you. That's a really great point. And we'll supply those links on our website when we release this episode. Especially, I think that would be helpful for, you know, you mentioned earlier in the episode, if a parent has a baby with intersex traits, the provider can say, there's a support group for you. So providers probably want to know the specific support groups that are available. Yeah. Yep. Those are really, those are really important. What's fascinating is I'm currently in process of working with a group of people to um, try and change surgical practice at our hospital, our children's hospital here. And so we're in conversation with the urology providers. It's primarily urologists who do these surgeries and they're just so disconnected, I guess is the word I would use. So disconnected from their impact on the the patient, the person they're actually doing the surgery on. The focus is so exclusively on the parents. And because these are primarily straight, cis people, they literally do not understand how that impacts how they show up or how they understand the world. And they are, they, they're carrying shame in themselves. They're like, I would be mortified if that were my body or my baby. I would be horrified that my baby had genitalia that I didn't expect. I would want surgery right now. Absolutely, I would want surgery. I think that's what's best for people, honestly. And anybody who doesn't want that, well, that's they'll just have to figure out how to live in a very hostile world that will just stigmatize and shame them their entire lives. And we think that's wrong. But when we're when you're talking that providers have these shame, the shame, the stigma inside of them. And that's why it's so hard to talk to parents, honestly. I think that they literally can't comprehend what it would be like to raise a child with variant sex traits. They wouldn't. They don't know how. And because they don't know how, it's not possible. It's just not possible in their worldview. 
Yeah. And then, like, really, at the end of the day, like, you know, nobody really even knows. No. Like, you'd be horrified at the conversations I have heard. Trust me on that one. I'm like, you know, I don't know what different genitalia babies have, and I don't care. Like, yep. Yep. So there's no shame. Like, it's just a baby. Well, well, the daycare providers think. What happens when that child has to go to school and change for gym class? Dead serious. And, you know, there are some conversations to be had about how we gender slash sex binary changing processes, how we assume this experience for, you know, that there are boys and girls only and that they should be separated and put into a large space where they can be tortured by each other for any natural variation in their body, whatever, across all sorts of spectrums. I mean, I remember middle school and oh, it's horrifying. It's horrifying to change for gym. I hated every second of it. And not every person says that. That's exactly yeah. right. You so, have big breasts. You have no breasts. You yes. You know, like, exactly. Exactly. You have hair on your legs. And what's funny is that in no other circumstance in your life are you like in large rooms of with other people naked. Like it's not like this is prepping you for the world in some way. Like we don't no. collaboratively get dressed anywhere else. No, we don't. Never. Right. Really, never. And you're gonna get some uh, some level of like right some level of picking on based on the body you have just for having a body. Honest to God, is the truth about that experience in changing rooms in middle school. Perhaps we should stop making children change clothes and be naked in middle school in the most vulnerable time in their life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's the answer. <laughs> I'm like the old ladies at the gym. Sure don't care. About it. <laughs> Nope, they sure and don't. More power to them, you know. But then it's like, yeah, when you're in middle school, you're like mortified. Yes. But that's like the only time in your life where you really are supposed to do that or have to do that. But, but they focus on those. They focus on those experiences as if they would be the most horrifying experience to ever have. And their job is to fix it so it doesn't happen. That's really the orientation. They just, they literally can't imagine a world where somebody with a naturally variant sex trait could live happily. Even though, even though there are trans folks all over the world now who have exogenous hormones that shift and change their sex trade, their external sex trade experiences enough that they're now in this kind of sometimes gray area. And those people are happily having those bodies and happily having sex with all kinds of people and not really having a problem. Right. That's, that's the piece. I'm like, we, there are already adults having this experience. Who could tell you how it's not bad? In fact, most people have no problems. And in fact, they have great sex and they're happy to. And they would, they love the body they have. They don't really, they, you know, they, lots of people with intersex traits, a few people, I'll be clear. Mostly people have surgery very early on before there's any conversation or any way to get input. But a few people sort of escape the system. They have parents who are aware enough who are like, no, I don't think surgery is necessary or parents who are just like, yeah, I think that's full of shit. I'm just like going to ignore what you say kind of thing. Those people do come out with genitals born the way they are. And mostly those stories are incredibly positive. Mostly those people have very positive stories of their sex lives and their sexual experiences. Very little shame or stigma, actually. Well, it reminds me of this quote too, which I have printed, but I can't see from where I record from. But it talks about like a flower, like when there's something wrong with the flower or something's happening with the flower, so much we focus on the flower and trying to fix the flower when really we need to be focusing on the environment the flower is in. And I think that's what you're speaking to is like we've become so 
person-centered that we have to fix this person when it's really we need to fix the environment and the social world that we live in. My favorite chant that Intersex Justice Project uses is, fix your hearts, not our parts. And I think that succinctly nails it, really. Fix how you think about me, don't fix me. I'm not a problem, really. Just make some space for me in the world, and I'm happy. It really also reminds me of Dr. Melhauser brought up the social model of disability and the things that you're saying are really similar. It's, it's not the person and their disabilities that we have to fix. It's the environment and making the environment accessible for everybody. And those disabilities in the individual don't matter when they can access things in the environment. So that it kind of all just I think it ties in a nice bow with the episode that's coming out today. Yes. So. Yes. That's, and that's beautiful. That's exa- those intersections. Again, those, all those places mm-hmm. that these people with intersex traits have these intersections with different types of experiences. But at the end of the day, most of them are really coming down to there's nothing wrong with me. What's wrong is your system. Right. Fix your system and I'm fine. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, This was a great episode. So Diana, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? I would just like to say, I think I'd just like to leave people with this understanding that it is possible to to change systems and change processes and change ourselves so that we are more inclusive. And that is my hope for all of us, honestly. I just, it's possible. It takes effort. It takes work. But doing that work, putting in that effort actually leads to a really more beautiful world for everyone. So I hope we do. It reminds me of, so how Diana and I met, that reminds me. So I was presenting at a conference on implementation science stuff. So nothing to do with sexual and reproductive health care or communication, really. But Diana asked a question that sort of blew everybody's mind after the presentation about de-implementing. Like, how do we de-implement all these structures? Like, systemic racism. I think we talked a lot about just in this episode that male female box, like we have to de-implement that out of our experiences because those aren't serving us anymore. So really it does come down to de-implementation. And it was kind of this like, you know, we're talking about like, how do you de-implement, I don't know, like turning patients you know, or not turning patients or, you know, that alarms, like we think about really hospital, like quality improvement stuff, but you asked this like huge question. And I was like, that makes so much sense, but I have no idea the answer. 90% of my questions I ask, and I have no idea how to get to the answer, to the question, to the answer. I'm just really curious about the question. And for me, it was like, oh, wait, all of a sudden it occurred to me, there's a science here. You all have been looking about how to change, stop, adjust, move healthcare processes and systems, you have the science. How do we put that science into place, into action around these systems of oppression that are inherent to our processes in healthcare? Racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all these normed, centered experiences of white cis hetero people are they're just compacted and wound deeply into everything we do in healthcare systems. How do we use the, the science of de-implementation to start to really undo those systems of oppression as they show up in healthcare? 
that's that's my question. I'm like really curious. I don't know the answer still yet, but I'm curious. Well, that is a whole line of research that we need to start doing. <laughs> Let's get busy. <laughs> All right. There you go. Good, good thing I'm getting that PhD. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes. Thank you, Diana. I had a great time. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Mm-hmm.